I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Rebecca. And before we get started on today's episode, uh, I'm just going to tell you about a new thing I'm doing. And I feel a little bit awkward and weird about it. So I'm just going to name that right now. Um... Because I've started a Patreon page for the Legacy Tapes. Um, When I started making this podcast, it was absolutely a labour of love. Uh, I've never been paid to make it. I've never paid anyone to work on it. And any expenses for kit or for travel or for anything like that, they come out of my pocket. Um, And I'm a working artist and sometimes uh, I'm do all right and sometimes I'm broke. And that obviously then has a knock on effect for what I can do in the podcast. Because if I can't travel to see someone, I can't interview them. So recently I've been thinking a little bit about how to deal with that and I've always been a really vocal advocate for fair pay and for sort of not exploiting oneself within the arts and so I'm trying to kind of live that truth a little bit. Um, So yeah, I've started a Patreon page. Um, If you are interested in this podcast and you would like it to continue and you would like the quality of it to improve, if you've really enjoyed listening to it and you just value what it is, it would mean the world to me if you would consider popping over to patreon.com slash the legacy tapes and making a small donation. You can donate as little as $2. I'm not asking for hundreds of pounds. Um, nothing is going to change. I'm going to carry on making them. Um, the big difference will be uh, that if a little bit of money does come in, I'll be able to afford better kit, which would should hopefully mean that the sound quality improves. And I'll have a little bit more time to dedicate to them because I'll be pay, being paid fairly for that time um, rather than just doing it at midnight while my husband sort of sighs in the bedroom. Um, hi, Andy. Uh, anyway, um, that was all a big ramble. Um thank you for letting me ramble at you. Uh, Thank you for listening to the podcast. I'm going to get straight on and jump into today's episode. Hello and welcome to The Legacy Tapes. I'm Rebecca Atkinson-Lord and this is a series of podcasts that examine how you might leave something lasting in the ephemeral medium of theatre. I'm here with Stephen Atkinson, who I don't think is any relation to me, Um, uh, he's the outgoing artistic director of High Tide, he, a company he founded in 2007 after leaving Hull Truck, where he was literary manager. Uh, he's won lots of awards. He's had lots of exciting um, and successful co-productions. Um, and probably if you've seen a piece of new writing in the last 10 years, he's had a finger in it somewhere along the line. Uh, hi, Stephen. Hi. Um, so uh, we've just been gossiping horrendously yeah. before this began. As I, is I the... should be the honest and say we've said that we'll be as forthcoming and as um, as truthful as we can be throughout the entire interview. There we go. Yeah, so you, there you go, you've undertaken not to dissemble, which is a pretty dangerous thing because I haven't even told you what I'm going to ask. Oh, I hope the questions are good. Uh, I've been waiting for the opportunity to sort of, you know, shoot my outgoing comments. <laughs> oh, Jesus, okay. Oh, my God. Amazing. If I'd, I think if I'd done that when I left... 
uh, the theatre that I used to run, I think I never would have worked again. I would have, it would have just been like a nail bomb. Because, um, you know, that's that's often how it is. Although probably not for you here, because this is your baby, right? This is your... Um, yeah, how does that feel? Good. It's been... Um, so I didn't know... So I left because I, was, I decided to leave because I was bored. Mm. And the initial um, thought of High Tide came from basically there should be more new writers being produced that felt like that was true at the time and the festival would be really good to do it and I just got really tired of like of sort of knowing how to do what I was doing and really feeling like I needed a new challenge mm-hmm. and it took a long time to then decide what I was going to do next right but now knowing that that I'm in this kind of odd hinterland between being responsible for high tide still and the shows that are on stage and sort of knowing how to do that mm. and then to plan all these new things and then realising how incredibly difficult it is to be a freelancer because actually even if you found it however you come to work for a company mm. there's a structure that then delivers everything that you want mm-hmm. to do and I'm now living without a structure so it's thrilling but exhausting yeah I mean there's a big part of these podcasts that exist only so that I have somewhere to go sometimes <laughs> as a freelancer like in the really dark times you know oh look I must go and meet Stephen Atkinson well welcome Farrakhan. to high time today yeah so awesome um, so tell me a little bit um, about I mean we, we're going to talk about kind of legacy and, and what that means and what you leave behind but I think it's really useful to understand how you got here mm. like how did you like how did you come to theatre because most people don't care about mm. theatre how did you then dis- you know how, what was the journey yeah I, um, I so I'm trying to think of exactly what the picture kind of felt like when I was starting out because Obviously, you know, there are theatres, there are artistic directors, there's a certain kind of stuff that's being made. And all that I really remember was I was at Reading University and then I did the new writer, um, the Young Writers Programme at the Royal Court. And in that group, like, um, you know, Al Smith, James Graham, Ella Hickson, there were loads of Evie Crow, like all of that kind of generation of writer was around. And it felt like they just weren't being produced. Mm. So, I mean, there might have been like a 503 scale of production. And the, and the very first one of kind of my generation that made it through 503 was Duncan McMillan. Mm-hmm. He did um, a play that now the name I can't remember. Of course. So Claire Lizzie Moore directed. And funnily enough, both of them were at Reading. But Ian Rickson was running the course at the time and Ian was dedicated to doing like the second and third, etc. plays of existing mm-hmm. writers. Uh, Mike Bradwell was just leaving the bush, so it was just before Josie Rourke came in. Yeah, and, my, and, and that was a golden age for the Mike Bradwell bush, I think. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, just like, you know, whether it's sports economy, fierce or whoever, like really great, like, storytelling mm. plays that came from all around the world and particularly had an interest in Ireland mm. and... Uh, and felt quite quite world changing. I, I remember mm. watching that that the, that work and feeling like it changed my world and my understanding mm. of it. Mm. And isn't it weird to think there's a whole generation of theatre makers that's come after us who have never known the book? I know. In that time, I know. Yeah. Because the room it's in now is, is fundamentally different. Yeah, totally. And it isn't an above-above-pub room. No. And it isn't even this slightly posher above-above-pub room that got flooded under Joe. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was a, it was a crappy above an O'Neill's mm. pub, and it kind of changed the face of theatre globally. Yeah, and launched so many careers yeah. subsequently. And actually, they kind of, because I think it was about 80 seats maybe or something that theatre. It was a good size. Mm. And the new theatre is almost 
too big to take the same kind of risks on. I mean, mm. I'm not talking about it in like a golden age sense, but it was a small room and it was just the right size to tell those stories mm. and they filled that room beautifully and now it's a kind of different type of theatre. But, but nevertheless, there wasn't... The, the culture that exists today of so many places doing new plays just didn't exist in the same way. Mm. So like with lots of these ideas, it was just simply the right thing at the right time. But the only thing I've kind of come to recognise in retrospect is there's a big difference uh, between a brain that is kind of entrepreneurial brain about going, there's a gap in the markets and this is mm. going to make it work, versus people who are kind of process people who make things happen. Mm. And I've realised that it's probably that kind of gap identifying uh, area of working in theatre that is the thing that I found most fulfilling mm-hmm. thinking about anything that I've done in high side really. Mm. Yeah, I think the ten- that tension between entrepreneurship and artistry mm. um I think there's, there's such a rich seam of to be investigated there, and it's always constructed as this false dichotomy. Um, you know, and I used to work in investment banking, and I'm absolutely a bloody artist. But be, the, there isn't a space, I don't find a space where I can talk about both of those things as part of a single identity. Um, it always has to be a, a by the way. So I guess the, the founding of a company means you, you can create a, a job or a role in your own in, in your, the perfect image right yeah well <coughs> I, I, and that image in a quite transparent way kind of was the raw cause in that mm. I wanted to create a company that was dedicated to realising the vision of writers mm-hmm. and that's ultimately what we ended up doing but yeah I think there is like there's not um, I think sometimes people don't quite understand what entrepreneurs do or necessarily trust them and uh, in that I think often people think if you do your own thing then you're always a bit of a rogue element mm. and you, know, you you end up sort of shaping the industry in the way that you think it needs to look but the thing that I've always tried to do and, and even in the season of plays that we have in Edinburgh at the moment you know like I, for the first time in my career I'm working with three uh, maker writers who identify as non-binary. Mm. So the opportunity is always, how do I keep up to speed with like the pace of the changing world? And I think if I ever got to the point where I felt like, oh, I'm not interested in that, that's too edgy for me, mm. then I'm in the wrong business. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that's probably the right place to be. Although I totally find myself these days not necessarily being like, that's too edgy for me, but just rolling my eyes and being like, I'm too old for that. <laughs> Can I, can I outsource the energy required for whatever that, that thing is? Um, coffee. Yeah, yeah, too much coffee. Um, so tell me, okay, so so Reading, um, Reading Royal Court writers wanting to fill that gap. How? Tell me about the path into Reading. Had you was it an intention to make theatre a career? Would theatre been a thing that you cared about? Why? Um, I think film was probably what I loved the most, mm-hmm. but um, in, a, in a really simple way, I, like, like most people, I had a secret ambition to work in culture, no connections to it whatsoever, so I, I was going to do a sensible degree, like law, mm-hmm. and then have a complete change of heart after I did all the university applications, and the only university of the ones that I applied to that did a theatre degree was mm-hmm. Reading. And, it, and actually, the, the, what was so useful about it was that it, there's real value in understanding the canon. 
that precedes you because mm. I think it just helps you understand the context that you're about to go into I mean inevitably every new artist you meet sees the world through their own eyes and they want to change it but if you get some sense of how that you know who have been the major players before you and how they've done what they've done mm-hmm. that understanding definitely ended up influencing kind of high tide stuff <laughs> and even you know we I, I wouldn't do it today but the way in which I started to get money for high tide was that um, because it's all charitable fundraising and we had absolutely no track record of being able to be trusted with the money that we were asking for from trusts and the Arts Council etc yeah was to ask um, famous people to become patrons. Mm. And the only way that the relationship was ever manifest was it would literally be like, you know, a couple of months trying to get hold of Sam Bendy's email, then I get it, and dear Sam, will you please become a patron? Because if if you attach your name to the company, people will think we're legitimate. Thank you very much, Stephen. <laughs> and, and then the response literally is, you know, Am I, am I legally responsible for anything? Answer, <laughs> no. Um, okay, then you can use I'm my name. Right, but, yeah. but people do start to think, oh, okay, you know, mm. I, I, if that person's involved, then it's probably legitimate. And that understanding of who the right people might be to try and make a company work um, came from Reading. But, you know, I, I've never, in 12 years at High Tide, I've never met an artist or a producer or anyone who's come from the same, that everyone's journey mm. is different. Um, it takes remarkable uh, chutzpah, doesn't it, to just be like, hey, Sam, can we just use your name for shits and giggles? <laughs> we ask nothing. We just want to capitalise on your brand. <laughs> like, that, I mean, that's a remarkable skill to have, right? Just the balls to do that. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it now. And I wouldn't do it now, not out of fear, but just out of what, what was always the most frustrating thing about High Tide was... Um, you can never control what people think of either your work or the company you create mm. or anything. And what annoyed me so much in the early days, and still now to some degree, was the sense that the company was incredibly nepotistic, well-networked, privileged, etc. Mm. And I think that entirely comes from the choice of patrons that we ended up getting. And not that they, I mean, they certainly weren't responsible for that. Mm. And, and if anything, it was, it was the uh, ignorance of my decision but I also know that had I not asked people like David Herr to be involved, mm. we literally could not have got the money to produce plays by Nick Payne and Joel Ward yeah. and Nixon, et cetera, in the early days. Mm. So that was the kind of trade-off with the devil, in a way. Um, that's super interesting because I want this is not I'm gonna talk I'm gonna talk to you out of order now. Um, <laughs> because you just kind of alluded to uh, your perception of how people see the company which you said something like nepotistic and yeah. well-networked. What was the other thing? Um, probably some other pejorative term. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm super interested in that because when I, I chatted to Rupert Gould not so long ago and, and he was really clearly kind of, he had the burden of being the poster child for the floppy-haired posh boy brigade, mm-hmm. um, which he is, you know, bless, bless him, he's a perfectly nice man doing his absolute best in the world. Uh, but he is that, that is how he's perceived. What... How did that understanding of... I mean, I'm not sure that's how I think of High Tide, but how did that understanding that that was the image of High Tide come to you? And what, like, what's... 
Um, well, well in, in two uh, specific and tangible ways. Mm. So the, the first one was, um, so the offices that you and I are in now yeah. um, are, are very nice offices. Super posh. Super posh yeah. that are given to high side for free. Yeah. But our first office was given to high side for free. And um, again, total ignorance, but there used to be a members club that was on uh, just off the Strand on Adam Street. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah, I know it. Yeah, yeah and it was called Adam Adam Street Club, Adam House, whatever it was called. The office was called Adam House. And the guy who was running it, who had been introduced to someone who was supporting High Tide through those kind of networky kind of ways, said, look, it's the beginning of the financial downturn. So this is 2008 Mm. when the markets crashed. I've got I've got spare room. If you'd like to uh, work out of this office for free, then by all means do it. And what was so impossible about that was that you so it was a, um, a Georgian building there was a, a receptionist to you know shirt and tie very posh and mm. all the other companies in that building were financial service companies right. so and when, back in the day when it was only Sam Hodges and I who were mm-hmm. doing it then you know you get in the lift you go up to the top open a big door and that's where Sam and I were yeah. and it felt like and I remember writing I remember Adam Bracer at this place Stovepipe for us saying we felt like we'd hit the big time because it was like being called in to see yeah. the money producers who kind of got the cash yeah. and and in that year so that very first festival cost us um, I think it was £72,000 and I remember being in rehearsal on four plays and we'd raised £30,000 so from a cash flow perspective it's going to cost £72,000 we've raised £30,000 that did massive massive problems mm-hmm. I remember having to have a series of conversations with every artist involved in that festival that was something along the lines of we believe in, we've always believed in paying people. We're not asking anyone to do profit mm-hmm. share. So we're going to continue to pay you. And I remember this conversation with Adam Grace. And I think I said something along the lines of, Adam, we promised you £1,500. We don't have £1,500. We're about to go under. Can we please give you £500? I remember Adam saying to me, Steve, you know, I love and respect you, but look at, look at this office. Look at what surrounds you. And I really value my work. So I respect what you've said, but I believe my work is worth fifteen hundred pounds. <laughs> so you'll pay me fifteen hundred. Because he thought you could move to a dive down the road. Whatever, however, yeah. we ended up making that money match, which I, I understand. So inevitably, we ended, and rightly so, we paid. And that, his play was the play that transformed the company. Mm. You know, it's the reason why the company still exists. The other aspect is is what was then reflected back to us, and we had this weird. Uh, early kind of animosity with some members of the press mm. and that was there were two critics in particular one was Michael Coveney who used to write for What's On Stage mm. and Coveney was this combination of critic slash kind of Quentin Lexi social diarist mm-hmm. so he would often write you know as, I remember we did um, I Call Crabs and Wolverswick at the Bush which was our mm-hmm. show in London and in his review Michael talked about who was in the audience for the play now that that has got absolutely nothing to do with Joel Orwood's play, but he was interested in the people that kind of mm. felt like they were orbiting around high tide. And the other was Lynn Gardner. And Lynn is a critic that you know I've admired for a long time for 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 many very obvious reasons. And she always felt that we were a bunch of privileged um, Oxbridge mm-hmm. kids. And I, I, I tried so many times with Lynn, and at one point we sort of one of our uh, PR reps said, "Look, Lynn doesn't like you, so we need to somehow try and find a bridge here because it just it's not a constructive relationship." And I said, "Well, look, I'll, I'll have a coffee with Lynn and see if I can find some kind of bridge." And I remember saying to her, "The sim- simple truth of it, that 
you know, I didn't go to Cambridge, my dad was a milkman, and my mum was a care worker. So whatever sense you've got of what my privilege is mm-hmm. really isn't genuinely true. And she sort of tussled with me a bit. And I think what she was trying to tell me, which has taken me a long time to recognise, is at that point in my life, I still imagined myself as the 14-year-old who was living that experience. At the point in which I met Lynn, I'd been doing it for five or so years, and I'd simply changed. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the fact of, of working in theatre and making a living out of it, then, and I think this is when people talk about class nowadays, which is a subject that really interests me, but, you know, I have changed. Mm. And what, 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 what is my true self now? I don't know, but all that I know is that it would be false of me to go out and bang the working class drum in the mm. way that feels very important to me for other people. But myself, I have changed mm. because of the opportunities that have afforded to me. Yeah, and also there's a, I mean, there's a degree of social capital like you have to have a degree of social capital to get that fancy pants office on Adam Street right so somewhere along the line that's happened and kind of acknowledging that and owning that yeah yeah. Um, and I really feel it's like I made a show a couple of years ago called The Class Project and uh, because I'm I am I am a culturally displaced, socially mobile person who started in one class and is class, class <laughs> um, and is in another and and it's super, super interesting because people come and critics come and see the show, and um, in which I begin presenting as the person I began life as, and mm. then I end up presenting as a, a posher version of who I am now, mm. um, and absolutely want to ascribe a binary kind of uh, class identity to me. Where mm. you know, so so there's there's one review that starts. Rebecca Atkinson is a work. Rebecca Atkinson Lord is a working class theatre maker, and I'm like, I feel like. A, a wanker because I'm you know I, I'm not really like am I no that's certainly part of it it's much more complex than that um, did you make your peace with Lynn? yeah I think so and obviously you know Lynn her own kind of um, power base has shifted and, and that again is the fascinating thing about theatre which is that it, it never stops changing so the world that you know you and I started out mm. in is not the world in which people are starting out in now. But I just feel like uh, theatre as a business has never felt more vulnerable to me than what it is now mm. in terms of actually how do you fund new talent coming through, new audiences, blah, blah, blah. And I, I think we have to be honest. When I think work that isn't very good shouldn't be reviewed well. I think part of the contract is that we should be honest about what people are making. But we also just need to accept that we all have to really work hard and in it together to try and make sure that it continues because, um, you know, someone's got to pay for it to some degree. Like, you can't, uh, you can't ask people to do something and not be paid for it, but who is picking up the bill? And I think that's becoming harder and harder. Do you think we should make less? Hard, I, I love it? asking people this question. <laughs> but I kind of think, like, it's, I think the people who have had a couple of opportunities, maybe they should make less. Mm. But it's... Because uh, uh, it is hard to sustain a career, but I'm all, I, just, I just have to believe that because there's no fixed way of becoming an artist, mm. that somehow if you've got the story to tell, you have the opportunity to tell it and people will look after you and, and make sure that the audience that you're seeking to talk to can be found. So maybe it is, I mean, that, not to jump around topics too much, but that was certainly, because I used to think, 
the only validation that I would have in terms of someone listening to my artistic ideas would be to be a director. Mm. And I, I, I have absolutely no interest in directing anymore, but I was very lucky to be able to have as many years doing it mm. as I did in order to get to the bottom of that question yeah. about whether I was interested. I mean, fuck, I'll go back in time with you and take some of your opportunities. Now I know you're going to give up, <laughs> Stephen. <laughs> Jesus. Well, I, do, I, do, I, do, I do have that to as well. Not least of all the shows that I directed. I went, oh God, that would have been really good having someone else. <laughs> well, you so know, I think we all have those. Sorry, Cancel, but the audience had no okay time. I think we all have those. I think we're all like, oh, no, that wasn't, that wasn't mine to tell. Oh, well. Um, yeah, we've, I mean, we've got totally sidetracked. So let's just chat Sorry, about what... No, it's fine. It's just chat about what's interesting. Yeah. Um, How can we fix the business for Rebecca? How can we fix the business? I don't know. Like, I think... I see a lot... I see a lot of work that I wish hadn't been made. Mm. Um, Any more work? Because... um, Well, recently I'm lacking patience for things that aren't appropriately intellectually rigorous or things that present themselves as innovative when actually someone was doing it in 1963. Mm. Um... I went and saw something actually really really early on at, uh, when I was working at Oval House I went and saw something and the artistic director of the theatre um, thought it was very very kind of radical and right on and I and I thought it was I thought it was awful I thought it was dated in the 60s mm-hmm. um, you know it included someone pissing on the floor for two minutes straight while a metronome ticked yeah, yeah, really, really meaningful. Um, <laughs> and actually, you know, there was a time when that was meaningful, but that was probably just post Second World War. That certainly wasn't post millennium. Um, and I came out and didn't quite, I hadn't quite learned how to be circumspect. And so I just didn't say anything. She said, oh, was it, was it a bit too edgy for you? And I was like, no, it was so not edgy. There was nothing thoughtful or, you know, and it, and it kind of drove me crazy. Um, and so at the moment, especially because I've gone back to freelancing and my, and, you know, I'm just like everyone else. I, I, I thought when I was 20 and I decided to do this, I thought that by now, having achieved what I've achieved... Um, having produced a play that Nicole Kidman optioned, you know, I thought I'd be fucking safe. I thought it would be easy now. And it isn't, just like everyone else. I'm scrabbling for, you know, how to get the match for this project and the, you know, the philanthropy, whatever. Um, And so what I'm kind of coming to is when I see... And obviously, of course, I think my work's excellent. Right. Um, Right. And so I sort of wonder, you know, should... Is is it better to make it less of an agonising, torturous existence for fewer people? Mm. Um, and I don't I don't know because I feel like maybe young me would hit me over the head with the right wing bat for that. You know, mm. maybe, maybe it's just a little bit too reactionary. But you have one of those <coughs> brains that because you are a producer and a director, you know you can make a structure around the work that you as a director wants to do yeah. to facilitate this. And I actually, I, I think our business has been slightly bent out of shape with some of, I'm not saying that you and I are responsible for it, but, you know, when I'm sure we are, we're the elders now, you know. Well, we are, we are becoming part of the elder generation. <laughs> 
But that, so Heikner was running the National, and, mm. and he notoriously is someone who's a great producer, runner of a business, and also a very good director. Yeah. And that seemed to be a mould that other artistic directors felt like they should be aspiring mm. to or, or operating in that world. And perhaps the kind of greatest example of that through line is Josie Rourke in mm. terms of you know, someone who's very strategic and even in terms of like why she thinks a play is relevant or not, mm. it's absolutely about how it connects to headlines. She'll commission plays literally based on headlines mm. or, you know, if she do measure for measure, it's about gender politics because that's kind of in ether. And do those brains make the best artistic directors? I don't know. You know, I sense possibly not. I think I think that the job of an artistic director is to look at the conversation we're not having. Yeah. Exactly. If the conversation's exactly. being had, exactly. why waste your time? Mm-hmm. Like we don't you're not going no one is going to think a new thought. Mm-hmm. Um because we're rehashing the headlines. But that's something to do with like the kind of professionalization or the, the businessization yeah. of theatre. Yeah. And and suddenly this feeling in some ways that the structure is not quite right. And, and my, one of my concerns at the moment, just to step out <coughs> to the specifics of mm-hmm. art, is I think this we are sleepwalking into quite a big problem, which is that it, it's a real issue when um, the lyric Hammersmith the Donmar, who I can't remember who the National, whoever else, can do, can announce a season that could be replicated in any of those auditoriums. Like the artists are the same, the types of plays are the same. Mm-hmm. And I think what the artistic directors and perhaps this in general aren't quite recognizing at the moment is the whole reason for a theatre to have an artistic director in the first place and a production department is that there's some sort of singularity of vision. Yeah, a that, unique aesthetic. Exactly. That's about yeah. the relationship with the audience mm. that goes to that theatre. And if we do get to a position where it feels like every theatre is essentially making the same type of play mm-hmm. with the same type of artist, we will just stop having artistic directors. See, now, I think this is our fault. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Rachel Briscoe, who was my co-director at Overhouse, she is very fond, or was very, very fond of saying when we were, oh, Jesus, 20-something, that... Um, that actually, once upon a time, the the fringe, the thing that now we call off West End, um, had a unique and uh, vibrant aesthetic and agenda and anger of its own. And probably around the time, probably the post-1998, you know, the new Labour generation, which is us, um, around about that time, what happened was the fringe started aping... It started trying to be the Royal Court or the Almeida mm. and so what happened and it was probably it was probably that arrival of Josie at the bush is a mm. really good mm. pinpoint um, in that it you know the the, the 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 thing that was on the edge that dropped pebbles that caused ripples that changed the whole pond mm. I love a metaphor um <laughs> ceased to be any different from the rest of the pond and was all about aping yes. what already existed we're all about aping the mainstream and I you know I look at I look at my career and I you know I talk a good game about queering the mainstream and seeking to I can't remember what the current bullshit on my website is but it probably says something like and um, you know seeking to advance the sum of human knowledge and I do really really believe those things but because of the because of the imperative to be business-headed and because I'm capable of doing that, there is always a shift towards production, high production values, by which we mean it looks like it could be on at the Unmade or the National. Yes, yeah, Or yeah. Um, an aesthetic that mirrors that. And, that. and so we've lost that sense of... 
an, an outsider force that that suggests a different way of doing things and that means that everything becomes homogenized because everybody has trained through that same um, mainstream aping mm. structure but that has happened from both sides which is that the mainstream has also followed what the fringe is doing more closely so even like um, the idea at the national of how do we keep the spirit of the shed going well mm. in that case let's make Northmen have shows that like smaller production budgets, interactive theatre, like someone like Rob Drummond, for instance, doing his play in the Dorfman, you know, they are not kind of natural fits in terms of what the audience is looking for. Yeah, but do you think smaller production budgets was really about maintaining a, a, a fringe aesthetic? No, I mean, it's about... <laughs> trying to You've read complete accounts, come on! <laughs> but like, so I went to see um, Rutherford and Son there all yeah. week, and... Like the ticket was seventy quid or something like that, and it was you know it was, the seat was okay, but trust me, if there was a ticket that was ten pounds in the house, I would have bought that. Yeah. If it was a ticket of any other price than seventy pounds, I would have bought that to see that play, mm. and that's a very different thing again from like the heyday of Travelex of that many seats yeah. going for that amount of money. But it, it is, you know, I guess in some ways they it will continue to change but we do have a real summation at the moment with a, a very good director like Roy Alexander Weiss where within five years he's gone from being an assistant director at the Bush and at the Court dude he was part of our young company at Oval House <laughs> <laughs> like in, t- in terms of like my like aging so you're like a sorry get bumped uh, in. I'm, well no I mean he was always very sweet but I didn't have we didn't interact much but like in terms of watching a kid all of a sudden become the AD at the exchange I'm like oh god I'm a failure what? <laughs> <laughs> shit <laughs> fair quick I can some fair attention but, you know. but, sorry, but I think that is the mainstream going like whatever it is that we are about is not relevant so it's a real search to try and go, so who are the people who are really changing things? Now, the responsibility for someone like Royal, for any of his contemporaries, is how do you, you honour the journey that you need to continue on as an artist to get to know exactly what it is that you're doing and how you want to do it, etc., and not feel overburdened by all these other responsibilities? Mm-hmm. And there's something in this which, uh, what has not changed in 15 years of working now, is people continue to want to be artistic directors or associate directors. And in part, that is about the ability to get a show on. Mm. But I think ultimately it's about being paid. Like it's about having an actual living that you can count on. And that's the se- there seems to be a tension in that to me, which is that the height of um, ar- artistry is not being an artistic director, because mm-hmm. it's, it's a just it's running a business, it's a mm-hmm. very different job still. And yet, it's one of the few jobs that actually pays a living. So there somehow has to be some sort of reckoning where that yeah. isn't the top of the tree. So I think, I reckon I've been uh, interviewing for artistic director jobs for... Oh, Christ, a decade probably now, mm. give or take. Um, and I get some of them, and I don't get others. Mm. Uh, and sometimes I get them, then I turn them down, and then I spend myself, spend a decade and five years kicking myself, you know? Um, so I think one of the things that I'm really aware of a shift in is it, it felt like when I first entered the theatre ecology, buildings tended to be run by two people a business head and an arts head. Mm however they were named and then there was this shift where those people were those roles were united into one post which was presented as about um a unity of voice i think but was really cost saving because you only pay one senior management salary and and what used to happen was that that person was an artist with great business skills 
and now that's kind of shifted into now that's that person is a business person an entrepreneur with a, a, a vague sympathy for art hopefully not always <laughs> sometimes they hate art um, and I'm sort of and, I'm, and, I, and it's a thing that I'm really really aware of just in terms of what I'm asked to talk about in interviews by boards um, and there are some things that remain the same um, and there are something which is at the moment appears to be uh, are you going to have children and leave um, and then I try not to swear um, <laughs> um, and then the, 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 just the shift towards the business focus no one wants to know about artistry and and what's super interesting is on the rare occasions when someone does want to know about artistry you're so you're so used to having to flog the business side of your skill set that you kind of you don't got space in your 10 minute presentation and and i think there's a tension there that if if we want artistic directors to have that unique aesthetic that you're talking about i think i think that we have to return to two less well-paid gigs yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, I, and I think like the, the thing that I was really proud of at Oval House is that Rachel and I. I mean, Rachel is a fucking terrifyingly good producer. Mm. Um, she, t- I mean, she scares me to death <laughs> <laughs> with her love of spreadsheets. Um, and and I'm and I, do you know what? I'm a good producer, but I'm nowhere near as good as her. Mm. Um, and I think what was super interesting is that we're both artists and we're both producers, and we would take it in turns to play those roles in like really dialectic. Mm. You know, there would be proper rows. You mm. know, and and there were periods where we hated each other, and we, t- you know, we, I talk about this. I don't know if she does. Sorry, Rach. Um, there were periods where we hated each other, um, but it meant that every decision that we made had been kind of battled out, mm. and so I think. That that dialectic model mm. is really, really useful, and, and, and in that cost-saving measure that happened mm. probably 10, 15 years ago, it just got it, 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 it was laid waste without anyone ever really thinking about what it meant. But am I right in thinking that the, the structure that you had at Oval House was that the two of you, you shared head of theatre, yeah, but you had the chief executives that you reported into. Yeah, yeah, because that because that this is the battleground at the moment for lots of places. In mm. that. So. Um, Soho now is a is a model where the chief yeah, executive David, yeah. is. Well, no. So David is David Love is the creative director, but he's not the chief executive. So Mark Godfrey is. So Mark Godfrey of is boss. Yeah. But and the, now the Traverse Theatre, who are recruiting mm. two new posts, are doing exactly the same mm. thing. So the executive producer is the chief executive. Mm. Now, I, 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 they can they can absolutely can work, but. It still means that the person, who is the person who has the final say mm. within a theatre? Should it be the artistic director? Should it be the executive director? Or should it be a combination of the two of them? And, and my own thing, because I've had different sorts of management structures at high tide, but my feeling is that it should be one person, because there's accountability with one person, which is that, as I had a time here where I shared the chief executive mm. with, a, with our executive producer, and what was impossible about that is that, let's say if you say, one of you says, let's do a show, the other one says, we shouldn't do the show. And then you say, why aren't we doing it? And they say, because we haven't got the money. And you say, well, actually, we can raise the money. Mm-hmm. So let's take, and if you just fundamentally disagree, who, is, who arbitrates that mm-hmm. disagreement? So within any management structure, you go to the board. Now, if a board is being reported to by two chief executives, 
you cannot choose one chief executive over the other mm. because it makes the position untenable yeah. for the other person. So at least if there's one, my experience again is that if there's one person who's chief executive, you can say to the board, this is what I think we should do. And if the board disagree with you, it's fine because the costs are sort of less and the, the points, that sort of like leadership mentoring role that a board is supposed to have can say, actually, have you considered A, B, C, and D? Mm. And you have, you can't lose face because it's only you and you're being mentored by your board so mm. you can sort of reshape this. Now, if that person is the artistic uh, mm-hmm. director who's saying that, then the board just don't really have license to talk about whether the play was any good or not, or why did the play fail, because it's ultimately the artistic director's vision. If it's the executive director who's the chief exec, then it comes down to the figures. Mm-hmm. And if the figures are, why did you do that play, and you sold 20%, the artistic director might have a really good series of reasons artistically of why that play didn't quite get pulled off. The executive director has a totally different frame of reference. Mm-hmm. It's about, it's about and it's easily quantifiable and it's easy. It's easily talk, talk aboutable. With money, absolutely. With, <coughs> With that money. kind of business sense. The artistic side is different. Yeah, but Stephen Atkinson, fuck that shit. <laughs> Like, we have to have models. We have to be able to talk about value in ways that aren't money, right? And if we can't do that here, in this, like, I mean, for what's well, telling that to boards? Oh, I, I, oh, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But again, you know, lots of trustees of charities, you know, they give their time for free. It's very good, etc. And I should also prefix this by saying that you know, I, I've worked with my board for twelve years, like lots of different trustees. But what I irrefutably know, and it really pisses me off, is that people do not understand creative producing, dramaturgy, artistic direction, any of that kind of stuff. Like they literally think you could be, once you choose the play, it's like you could be there, you could not be there, it just happens. Mm-hmm. That is an absolute yeah. fallacy. Yeah. And, and part of the complexity of it is that because with most theatre companies, you say, these are the artists that we're supporting, and all artists are vulnerable, then you know writers generally are not that forthcoming in saying, oh yeah, actually that person gave me that idea, because there's a whole sort of creation myth. And frankly, you know they do they do the hard work. You know, Collaborator agreement. But is that a different contractual um, framework? I yeah I uh, now since a pro- since a very successful project in which I did lots of work and wished I was richer as a result. Mm. Um, I. I have a collaborator agreement with anybody that I provide significant development support to, mm-hmm. um, because I, you know, the, the the plays that I've worked as as a drama on as a dramaturg or a director, I can tell you the bits. Mm-hmm. I can tell you the day and what the mm-hmm. conversation was, and oftentimes I plotted the beats of the scene and they just put the dialogue in. Mm-hmm. So like, there's a shared ownership there, and I think I think we have to move towards understanding that. That there is a, a multiplicity of authorship in every in every piece of theatre. And what to so, so the other the outside pressure on this is that because IP is just so ridiculously mm-hmm. valuable now, yeah. and and often writers are the first people to get agents, and agents are really good at going, you know, this is the mm. this is the IP of my clients. What can we, as an industry, whether it's stage directors UK or whoever, mm. what could we do that helps dramaturgs and directors get more recognition? I think just like there are standard agreements for all of the creative roles, there should be a standard format collaborator agreement. Mm. And it, you know, it isn't. I had a conversation about this this morning. It isn't a difficult thing. You go, look, we're mates and we love working on this, and no one wants to fuck each other over. Mm. What's fair? And you have a conversation, and. You know, sometimes uh, recently, uh, I, I had my agent negotiated with another agent over this, and me and the 
the, my collaborator had agreed and then that person's agent started being a dick mm. and it meant that in the end I could go well I'm not here's the deal I'm not going to work with you if you Welsh on the deal mm. Do you, would you rather have 50% of nothing <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and having that you know having that framework having a standard agreement and being able to go point it and go look this is what this is what is best practice mm. means that that's possible mm. and it matters a lot because in a way it goes back to this thing of how do we alleviate some of the pressure of making a living as an artist yeah. so if you look at Fleabag and Vicky Jones' yes. ongoing relationship yes. with that yeah. you know, that that is at the heart of it a, a friendship that matters more than the money ultimately yeah. these are two friends who stick by yeah. each other and protected one another but if they haven't been friends rare. Well, yeah, if they hadn't been, and, and I would imagine that contractual framework probably didn't exist. No. It's probably about or if someone, you know, if the Beeb or whoever had come to um, Phoebe and said, here's the thing, mm. we love this, but, mm. ooh, that... We love you. We love you. you. This is Vicky. Um, you know, I mean, Phoebe was quite successful, so probably had a degree of, of, of confidence behind her. Um, but... It's really hard to to manage the choice between your fu- what is portrayed as your entire future career yes, yeah, yeah. and this person that you love and you don't and you don't want to screw over and how so actually if you if you agree those things or at least agree what you're going to do to your best efforts mm-hmm. before any of those pressures are put upon you mm-hmm. I think it makes a huge difference and yeah, even right. if no one ever gets you know even like nothing you know the, the thing that I spent time on today is never going to pay my mortgage. Mm-hmm. Um, Assuming I ever get a mortgage, <laughs> mortgage. but like it, it means that it means that I, I'm never ever going to feel hurt, and I'm never ever not going to work want to work with that person for those reasons. I mean, they might piss me off in other ways, or I might piss them off. Um, so I, I think I think there are things we can do in t- in terms of we, we when we look at best practice and when we look at agreements, we we're still writing agreements for a structure that stopped existing thirty years ago. Um, and it's re- you know it's really frustrating. I used to be on the equity directors committee, and I spent a lot of time shouting at people mm-hmm. forty years older than me because they were so concerned. Like you know, the, oh God, there was one meeting where we spent an hour discussing whether it was appropriate for a theatre maker who to call a workshop a masterclass and whether mm-hmm. they were. And I'm like, this, this. I mean, that's the thing. But also, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Let's worry about all of these people, all of these things that are real. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it just it's just unfortunate that in all sectors at the point at which you're legislating you're no longer qualified to legislate right yes, because you've yeah, yeah, gone yeah. past it I think it's a, it's a massive thing to solve because at a time in which people who made theatre moving into TV and film were very much you know fewer and further between what we all know anyone who works in talent development mm. new artists knows that um, a big contingent of your audience in the Fringe Theatre is agents and talent scout. Mm. In fact, I've just come back from the Edinburgh Fringe, and the Fringe obviously have the industry uh, yeah. spreadsheets. Yeah. And you look at the industry spreadsheets and realise, oh, there's BBC Films, there's ITV, there's everyone, everyone else. First and foremost, I think, why are you on the industry spreadsheets asking for free tickets when, mm. in actual fact, you're making a, a lot of money yeah. um, in your own respective industries? And second of all, if you have one hit play as a writer, you're going to get commissioned for TV and film in mm. no time. 
there's a whole quality of care question then of, you know, are you ready to do that big series and who's looking after you in that talent development way? Because that development's so different. And it's so and, and your ownership of the idea is entirely different and mm. not understanding that can be quite a painful thing. And, and the sense of it is, you know, we've paid you a lot, so actually we're paying you to deliver mm. what it is that we want. Yeah. But that still places all of this emphasis on that one individual and that, you know, that contract that you sign could be £100,000 for, you know, one episode of a big Netflix thing. For the, for the director who might have done one or two shows with you and probably the show that made Netflix aware of you in the first place, mm. that director you know, could have been paid £1,500 for that show, depending on the scale of the production. Mm. You know, if it's a good kind of subsidised run, maybe you know, you're in the £5,000 realm. There's a big difference between that half year you spent on that play for five grand and the £100,000 that's just been paid to the writer of it. Mm. Yes. <laughs> And I just say again, the collaborator agreements. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, just because of this exact, that exact yeah, yeah. scenario, you know, I have lived through a couple of occasions that exact scenario, yeah. um, and I'm, you know, I'm lucky. I'm, I'm like, you know, I, I, I am great at developing new theatre and new scripts. I'm, I make it better, even if I'm not the author. Mm. Um, hi, here's my big swinging dick, um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's, and you, like, you have to. I mean, it probably took me until I was 35 to be able to say that and say this thing that I do that no one can quantify is the difference between a show being produced and not and therefore deserves to be, even if it's just credited, even if it isn't about money, it deserves to be acknowledged that way. Yeah, I agree. Because that's the currency I trade in, is being able to go, yeah, I can make this a thing. Do you think, are we now in a situation where we think we might have several fellow 35-year-olds who are listening and thinking, this is exactly the position I'm in, how can I put it right? Uh, I mean, for sure. Like, I think our entire generation, I think we're, oh God, getting old. I think (laughs) think our our entire generation is in a really interesting place because we, we exist in this space where the people ahead of us are very different and the people behind us are very different and we are the only ones that had that didn't have the you know that baby boom wealth experience um, or the generation x and y experience of kind of infinite possibility you know we've had our futures taken from us but also we didn't know that was gonna we didn't know that as kids so it's a, it's a super god that's a bleak way to frame it <laughs> but, but it, yeah I, th- I think i think there are a lot of us i think i think anyone who is our age unless you're i don't know ben power james graham Let's think of a woman, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, mm-hmm. right? Unless you're, is Lucy Preble? She's a bit older. Um, but you know, um, like I, th- I, th- I think, I think there are there are, there are very few people that can sit at, at this age in this situation and go, yeah, that's where, that's what I expected, or that's what I thought it would be like, mm-hmm. um, or you know, the world has been what was promised. Mm-hmm which is a thing I really look against a lot um, because the world isn't I mean the world isn't what was promised but no one will, you know at least at least the because I'm not a millennial I'm like I just make it not oh maybe I am maybe I'm the last year of millennials <laughs> but like you know the people the gener- the iGen which are the people behind the millennials they know <laughs> they know it's fucked so they can plan you know they know about I'm so a oh god too much shopping hour again <laughs> too much weakness right let's change the subject um, uh, the things that I should be asking you in this podcast about legacy is uh, is uh, what yeah why do you do this 
Um, I so it was sort of the same thing for a long time, which was that it was about identifying talent, so the writing talent uh, specifically, and going, what can I offer to the table to kind of bring it into being. I think I got lost in that. In the there's a there's like a pendulum, isn't there, in terms of what we do, which is that there's the idea itself and the kind of artistic development, and then there's who you're doing it for. And I really went down the rabbit warren, I think, of um, audiences, areas of low cultural engagement, whatever it might be, really mm-hmm. thinking about who I'm making it for. And when, so again, post, I'm leaving high tide, made the decision, um, what will I do next? Mm. I then, after a time of thinking, am I even going to stay in theatre, like a real kind of blue sky, what is it that makes me yeah. happy? I then listed the aspects of the job that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And and it always came back to a conversation, identifying the spark of an idea, understanding structure, that kind of thing. And I like what you were saying earlier about the value of dramaturgy and whether or not people understand this, knowing that I've always I I've always just seen the theatre almost like um, like a, a, a sheet of music in mm-hmm. that I can I I just know the structure that works. Now, not every play I've done has been structurally perfect, if that's ever an achievable mm. thing, because there's always a chasm between what the artist wants to do and what the artist is capable of and what you think is, as the producer mm-hmm. of the artist what they should end up doing. But I've never lost that certainty of this is good storytelling. So now I've just realised that, that what, my, what I can offer is that if I give it the time and focus and love and attention, that I can help people tell their stories, their truths in a clearer way. So I think that's why I always, that was always the passion of high tide. But in anything I do next, I think that will continue to be the passion, very much rooted in helping people tell their stories better. Mm. I think of it a little bit as a interference on a radio, because what you do is you just tune the knob, mm-hmm. that tiny thing, and then all of a sudden it's clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's not yeah, I, like Oval House, I used to. It took me like three years there to realise that most of my time was spent, and when I was working dramaturgically on pieces, that most of my time was spent looking at what the artist had made, finding the hole in the middle that they weren't talking about, and going, "Oh, that's what the show's about." <laughs> and then going, "Oh, fuck, <laughs> yes," yeah, and because and, it is because quite you know often as artists we make around. The, the, the truth you know the heart of it um, because it's too in, too much or too too direct or, um, but sorry because it was something that you were talking about earlier about mm. the nature of work that's being made at the moment and, and one of the things that I observed from eight days at the fringe of trying to get a sense of what's the direction of travel mm. is I do I, I, I have a real concern at the moment about people's personal narratives and how they're using them yeah and, and uh, there were several shows I saw this year where the performer felt so vulnerable mm-hmm. because they were talking about things related to their own identity and sharing um, their own concerns and just feeling that there's, there's a slightly almost self-exploitative edge in them mm-hmm. and I was trying to think like culturally where is that coming from and uh, you know everyone always connects all the problems in the world like to Facebook and social media and Instagram yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 if only that never yeah. existed that Trump <laughs> never would have come onto the horizon but maybe there is just something about that sense of you know us losing a filter of keeping things to ourselves mm. 
And sometimes, you know, that that is if if I was to try and pull a circle back to class and think about what how how do you change by being an artist? Then maybe it's just something about the space that allows you to kind of self question, self analyze, etc. That you know, because the whole point, however you make a show, is what and why, and that constant mm. questioning of why is quite a self reflective thing. This whole slightly rambling diatribe is just kind of coming back to this idea of. I, I, I feel even stronger about the responsibility of programmers, funders, artistic directors, etc. All these people who are trying to help artists tell their story. And it feels like we are more valuable than ever at the moment in terms of saying, are you ready to ask that and share that? Mm. Are you saying it in the right yeah. way? Yeah, and I think there is a... Because I'm, I make that work. Some of not always, but sometimes, and I've certainly facilitated a lot of that work or versions of that. And I think there's a really big difference between um, the, this is my this is my tragedy show. Let me cry at you for an hour, and we'll all feel <laughs> catharted. Um, and then there's the here is here is a tragedy for all of us and I tell and I use my personal narrative as the medium through which you can understand that and I think there's a really big difference in those things that we don't like we, we don't pay adequate attention to how something is mediated um, for the audience and and I've and, 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 and I've I have certainly worked on at least one show been paid I've been a hired gun to work on at least one show that felt like it probably shouldn't it didn't it shouldn't be in front of an audience mm-hmm. and it and, and because of but the did you realise that too late we were already working on it and you felt yeah, yeah. and at that point you can't pull it because yeah. I can't pull it or just I can't I, I've got to get paid yeah. they're gonna hire if, if I'm not the producer yeah, they're gonna yeah, hire yeah. someone else yeah. so can I at least be kind and and do my best to to moderate that that's a fascinating kind of <laughs> collective failure of responsibility yeah because there's a truth about but you know if anyone ever says to me why did that play get produced and that other one didn't because no one was brave enough to say no well yeah that often happens yeah. but also people just do, don't read scripts frankly <laughs> so so you go to another theatre yeah. and you say this is a play about this and mm. normally it's got some sort of like current currency about it's mm. being talked about in the real world X director is interested X actor would like to be involved this other theatre might be interested in co-producing it oh, really really great that sounds fantastic but it's all about the kind of mechanism and then of yeah. course the play goes on and then there's loads of big you yeah. know, producing organisations behind it and, and if it doesn't work it's like well actually such and such sets it up <laughs> so it's all your like, fault high yeah. tide <laughs> well, like yeah. that. So it's like what you yeah. said in the introduction of you know if it's a piece of the writing you've seen high tide's probably had something to do with it <laughs> yeah certainly Ho- hopefully the state yeah, of yeah. the writing is good otherwise uh, I need to <laughs> account for my sins I certainly remember really yeah really early on publishing a play text and having it all co- all done and then like a, the, we'd just press go on the print and a writer agent comes in and said you've forgotten we haven't we haven't told you about high tide's credit and I was like oh for fuck's sake <laughs> <laughs> like oh, let's go back and read it or read it all. Um, yeah just coming back to the personal exploitation thing like I think there is a thing in the current generation about the only thing you can rely on to exploit 
is yourself. The only thing you know is going to be there is yourself. Um, I also think there's a degree of, like someone said this to me, and I'm not sure whether I believe it, but I'm going to parrot it and then interrogate it probably. Um, said that in, you know, in, in the Me Too world, in the world where you go, as I have said, as I, as I do routinely, go to interviews where they check if you're going to have children and fuck them over as a, as a woman of a certain age. Um, you, you, you can, if you choose to take yourself out of that, the commodity you have as an artist or a ugh, content creator or whatever is yourself. Um, so I think that's one, and, and, it, and it, it is linked to social media and that, but it's also about the, the fucked up structures that we've allowed to perpetuate that, that no one wants to live in. No one wants to live in them, and it's just about how much power you've got to get out of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, but interestingly, I'm making a show, I'm making a show at the moment that's... <laughs> It's called How to Live Dangerously, and for ages, and it is about the politics of fear and about how you move through a world where it looks like the world's going to end every day for one reason or another. Um, And I just realised recently that actually it's a show about me being really scared about my dad getting old and dying. And it's like, ow, how do I, ow, how do I talk about that? Ugh. And and the answer is that I don't. The answer is that there is a there is a metaphor at the heart of the show that speaks to that, mm. and the emotional resonance is communicated in another way. And mm. um, but there is totally a version of that show where I stand up and say, "Guys, <laughs> my dad's going to see me. He keeps sneaking cigarettes. What do I do? You know, like there is there is a version of that." Um, that some people would probably pay to see. Yeah. Well, not me. I'd hate it. But well, like... I guess it depends on the, the aesthetic where you are in your practice. But you know, there is there's a there's less art, I guess, than a lot of stuff at the moment, which is that it is kind of packaged in Aurora way and presented. Mm. And and again, I think that there is just a kind of duty of care at some point. But it's again, you know, there's a, so um, we're doing a play at the moment written by uh, Kieran Hurley, mm. and he's got a line. It, it's kind of it's meta theatrical in the a, a playwright is a character in it, and the play is about appropriating a working class boy's life story for her play, mm-hmm. and she's trying to describe what theatre is to him, and she says it's a massive empathy engine, mm-hmm. and and he, Kieran writes a line about how a wonderful thing in theatre is you're watching one thing and you. Can Feel that moment when an audience's heartbeat synchronizes. Mm. Now that is a, a gorgeous notion, and I, I kind of wish that I had the optimism about theatre uh, in the way that he does in the writing of it. I've definitely been in those moments where it feels like that. Mm. But th- th- there's just so much in the world now, which is not about the things that unify us; it's about the things that single us out. And when we keep on going to the differences rather than the commonalities, it kind of does, again, come back to the cult of personality, mm. which is very much then about you and your own way of thinking. And I just hope that the reason why I'm still yeah. in theatre as opposed to film or TV or whatever else is that uh, fundamentally I do believe that there's a great kind of social event mm. in people just spending time together physically. Yeah, and I guess I, I entirely agree with you. Is, uh, the language is totally different, yeah. as you would expect. Yeah. But um, so somehow I think I'll come up for breath. But um, it feels that this moment that I'm living in at the moment, or my perception of the moment I'm living in, feels so familiar to that experience twelve years ago, mm. the beginning of High Tide, where I literally had no idea. But the thrill of learning was great. Um, whether it's new companies or a new endeavour in film and then the TV thing, it, it could not feel more stimulating. Mm-hmm. And I'm just pleased that rather than trying to capitalise on 
what I'd already done at high tide. I just thought sort of I'll throw the baby out with the bathwater and do very different things. Um, so that that risk and challenge is what's yeah. really fun. Start again, it'd be interesting. Uh, and finally, the question I ask everyone is: when you go from this place, um, and you can take that to mean this organisation or this astral plane, um, <laughs> <laughs> however you best uh, interpret yeah, I'm it. I'm thirty-five, so I've got a few more years left in me. Yeah, no, but plane. you can still be thinking about your life legacy, for God's sake. <laughs> um, what What do you want when you're gone? What do you want people to say about you? That um, he was nice to work with. Oh, that's nice. He was nice. Didn't do any harm. Nobody died. He's kind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I hope, you know, in all seriousness, I think kindliness and civility is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. But I've tried to... Not every relationship has been easy at high tide, and some are failings on my behalf, some are just the nature of what we do. But the ones... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. That some of some of the artists I work with have become friends, and I wish that they all would have become friends. But I'm just sort of rose tinted on that. Mm. But that is the dream, I think, to feel that it's not just about a show; it's about a lifestyle that we end up making together because we've got common beliefs and goals, and then you make friends out of it rather than just a show. Mm. Okay. Is there anything that you haven't said that you wish you had said? I wish I could have said everything in at least ten fewer words. Yeah, it's. I mean, we have just. It's just been a chat today, but I think that's okay. Yeah, it's been a fun chat. So yeah. Enjoyed it. Pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Um, if you've enjoyed today's show and you like what this podcast is and what it does, please do consider popping over to patreon.com slash the legacy tapes and making a donation to help support the work. Thanks so much. <laughs>